Welcome to the Babelry. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. Both of my parents are scientists, and though I chose to go in another direction, I have a deep interest in science, especially how the advance of scientific knowledge trickles down to affect our daily lives. But in this episode, we're starting by going in the opposite direction. How do our cultural norms invade the world of science, which is supposed to be logical and evidence-based? Specifically, what's it like for women in the sciences? There's no doubt that women have made huge advances since the years when male scientists would openly tell women they didn't belong. But that doesn't mean that suddenly everyone has cast aside biases and assumptions they may not even know they have. Most of us know to check ourselves when we are doing something blatantly wrong, but at the same time, most of us aren't able to step back and question small decisions we make, from which student we call on in class to which lab worker will get a raise. These three women are at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and after we turned off the recording, they wanted to add one important point. They love this university. They love the time they spend there, and they love what they do. They are daily inspired and supported by their fellow students, the professors, and the staff. But yet, they still arrive on campus each day as women. How does that affect their experiences? And how does the treatment of women in science affect the quality of the scientific research around the world? In this conversation, we try to dissect the complex creature that is the world of scientific inquiry at universities. Listen in. I'm excited to talk to you all about the subject of women in science. I know there have been a lot of controversies over the years from Lawrence Summers, then president of Harvard, saying that women just aren't genetically suited to study science, to substantial evidence that women are encouraged less, hired less, paid less, promoted less, and awarded less than men. As scientists, I'm sure you'd agree that in this environment, there is a lot of noise in the data, so we can't exactly come to a conclusion about nature versus nurture. But what we can do is talk about women and women's loves, love of science and our experiences in education and work. So I'd like to start by learning a little bit about each of you. Tell us what you do and what drew you to what will you do. And also, let's talk about you as a whole person, not just the person you bring to work. My name is Nasreen Brumann-Hoshbacht. I'm a fifth-year PhD candidate at UC Santa Cruz in the anthropology department, um, biological anthropology track, because I do paleogenomics research. Um, so I study ancient DNA of um, mostly ancient human pathogens. Um, so I look at how diseases have changed over time over like the past couple of thousands of years in their genomes. I started out at community college and then went to the University of Montana where I got my bachelor's degree. And then I worked for a little bit in between that. And then I ended up here at UC Santa Cruz for my doctorate degree. And I'm also the president of events for UCSC's Women in Science and Engineering. My name is Sarah Claus, and I work in the biology teaching labs at UC Santa Cruz. I knew that I wanted to be in biology since five. I declared my major. Uh, both my parents are in academia. My mom got a very late start going back to graduate school at 40. I decided not to go to graduate school. It was a decision um, because I always really loved my job. I was a research lab manager for 15 years, and then taught K through 12 when my kids were born. 
for about that same amount of time. Now I'm sort of regretting it and thinking I might have to go back, but um, I love my job at the biology teaching labs. Definitely have experienced the lack of equity and some pretty interesting other situations that are very much women related, but I, you know, I just uh, keep fighting for what I think is right. And the biology teaching labs is my platform. (laughs) Hi, I'm Shanna Howard. I am a fifth year graduate student at UCSC. I'm in the microbiology and environmental toxicology department. Um, My research is focused more on the toxicology side. So I look at how exposure to high levels of metals during development. Um, So infancy and childhood can then impact behavior and brain development throughout life. Um, I got my degree, my undergraduate degree in biology from UC Davis. And then I did, I spent a couple of years working in environmental education. So like outdoor ed, basically. Um, And I've, I've always loved biology and learning about, you know, living things and that kind of stuff. And I feel very fortunate because both of my grandparents on my mom's side have advanced degrees. Um, My grandma on my dad's side was a nurse. And so, you know, kind of STEM and science and engineering and these things have been kind of big in my family and, you know, have been encouraged in me, which I feel super fortunate to have. And yeah, so I'm also co-president with Nazreen of the Women in Science and Engineering group on campus. And so our kind of goal is to, you know, promote equity in STEM, equity and inclusion in STEM. And so it's been a really great community, you know, to see women and other people who want to promote women in science. Sarah, I noticed you mentioned something about your mom going back to school. And that's something that is an interesting theme in women's lives. Um, That's true of my mom as well. My mom got her degree in medical anthropology, um, took her 12 years. (laughs) She had four children. And uh, she got that, I believe, at Cal State East Bay. And then when I was 16, uh, well, she also had a uh, med tech degree. And then she quickly realized she wanted more and went to Stanford um, for her PhD in uh, immunology, microbiology, in studying infectious disease when I was 16. So when she was 40 and she worked a very long, um, very successful career, both at NIH in Montana, where they have an infectious disease research institute, and then she worked first at Middlebury, actually, University, and then at the NIH, and then um, at Tennessee. She was um, not given tenure at the NIH. They, uh, Once she left, there was a revamping of the situation there. She very much felt like she was not given tenure due to old boys network sort of stuff. She had a science paper. She was very well published and very well funded. She went on to do incredibly well at Tennessee, University of Tennessee, and left with research money. I, you know, she has been a role model for me. Do you think that it's important for women to see these unusual paths as part, uh, as a normal part of a career? Well, I think what I learned a lot from my mom's career, and I started working in her lab uh, when I was about 16 at Stanford. Um, you know, I'd come in on the weekends. She 
um, would they would all say, I can't believe you're going to graduate school with kids at home. And she goes, are you kidding? This is a break <laughs> in comparison. <laughs> it's like I get to get away. It, although although we raised our children very differently and we lived very different lives, I still feel the impacts that she felt choosing to have a family. One thing she did tell me uh, later in life was that the best time to have children <laughs> is before you start, you know, graduate school's fine, you know, but when you're doing your postdoc, you need to focus on, you know, everybody is expecting you to produce, you know, so this just to me points out the decisions we have to make as women, mm-hmm. you know, when is it best to go back to school? Should we, con- will we ever have children if we decide to go to school? You know, I just, and then in my work situation now, I see it very interesting. Both of my bosses are, um, my PI and my manager are both male and they both have children. I'm the, I'm the one who has grown children. So I don't have any restrictions on my time. And I see it so, you know, but they do. And they are very much expected because both their wives work to participate in their kids' um, upraising. And it, and it, I'm not going to say it's 50-50 because I don't think that's ever very realistic, but I find that an interesting change of events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And and what about your own relationship? Did um, working, going back to work influence have an effect on your own relationship? It was um, pretty amazing, actually. My husband uh, did kind of an early retirement from Cedar Sinide. He's starting, he's involved in two companies, one's his and one he's the president of. So we didn't have health insurance. And I came up here to help take care of my father who was aging. This was a temporary job that turned into a full um, no end date career position. What's really hard for me now is that I am I spend a lot of time working and so trying to fight for equity just is, it's like another job on its own, you know? (laughs) So I wish we would do the right thing and just promote people who just, that you see them being undervalued or underpaid, but you really have to fight for it. And I think it's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to do. And I'm putting my, my um, ducks in a row right now, trying to get that ready to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I have 30 years of experience, 15 in research, 15 in teaching. I left research to raise children. And also I taught K through 12 science. So I've always been in science. Then coming back to research in in this, you know, in the biology teaching labs, which is a great, you know, combination of my two career paths. So I just, you know, I just um, have a hard time with the equity of it, you know. Mm hmm. And we've had people leaving this job, like three people have left since I've been here in four years because of the equity. Sarah brought up so many things. And I want to ask you to, I'm going to back up first before we get into the whole question of fighting for equity, um, because of where you two are in your lives, which is pre-children or maybe not having children at all. And I would love to hear from you both about what I assume that the, that Sarah's not the only woman that you've met who's had career interruptions and also felt that choosing to raise children can can dampen your opportunities in the future. And and how does this affect you as a young scientist coming up? Maybe Shannon, you should you should answer first. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. So first of all, I kind of want to talk about my, you know, my family experience. So another woman in my family who went back and got her degree was my grandma. Um, She actually got her PhD when she was 60 years old in psychology. So, um, you know, I think I have, you know, growing up, knowing her, knowing that she went back to school, you know, later in her life and got this degree has kind of been, you know, inspiring for me in the fact that I can kind of see, you know, timeline, you know, everybody's timeline is different. Um, And so just because you don't, you know, have the traditional timeline where you, you know, graduate undergrad, get your PhD, do your postdoc and all that, like whatever your timeline is, is fine. And she actually retired recently at like 80 years old. Um, So she just found that really rewarding. And I think for me too, I know so many of my friends and family members and people who, you know, are in their careers in the midst of their careers and like are having their first child or thinking about having children or, you know, really wanting children, but not feeling like it's the right time um, and so on and so forth. I think personally for me, I actually don't really feel like having children is something that I want to do in my life. You know, I think at 20 years old or 28 years old, um, you know, everyone had many years of people saying, oh, you'll change your mind. You'll change your mind. Like, well, you know, maybe I will, but maybe I won't. And so I feel like a little bit less pressure in that regard. And then when I think about like, oh, you know, just entertaining the idea, maybe if I did want to have kids, like, what would that look like? And it seems very stressful, <laughs> you know, from a career perspective, from a financial perspective, and then thinking about like, oh, the men in my life, like how many of the men are, you know, experiencing these same kind of problems, issues, the same conundrum. And it's like, you know, I haven't talked to anybody who's like feeling like having a kid as a man is going to interrupt their career. I noticed something that you said that that I, I wrote down, which was stressful. And I just will point out, I have to point out to young women who have not had children that yes, it is the hardest thing you'll ever do. It is also equally as amazing. I personally am not interested in having children. Um, I enjoy spending time with children. I was a, um, a camp counselor for a couple of years. Like it's, it's fun, but like at the end of the day, I want to like give them (laughs) to somebody else. I don't want to have to (laughs) take them home with me. So, but I, yeah, I definitely have a lot of friends, family members who are thinking about like, how do I, how do I make it work? You know, how do I have children in the timeline that I want and still, um, be able to pursue my goals without without it affecting like my possibilities for being promoted. Um, because I mean, even though we're not supposed to discriminate against people for pregnancy and for for having children, like they do, like people do discriminate against people for for being pregnant and for taking maternity leave and for having to you know have a flexible schedule to be able to take care of kids. Also, it's a little bit upsetting that (laughs) that, like it it is always like the women that are expected to leave work to like go pick up kids rather I mean not always but um like I feel like it is the norm um it is it is the norm I can tell you that that everyone I've known has known in their extended like in my extended preschool my kids both went to the same preschool so that we were there for a really long time and in that extended group of people there was one dad who quit his career 
because his wife was, he was, he was like thinking, oh, I might want to change careers anyway. So this sort of makes sense for my life right now. And his wife was really on the, you know, career. I, I, if I stop now, you know, this isn't, isn't going to be good. And then you look at that and you think, wait, if she hadn't felt that, if she hadn't felt that taking a couple years to be at home with developing children was so detrimental to her career, would she have made the different choice? I don't know. But I do know that, that he, he loved it and had a great time with their kids. So, and, so but you know, all, all couples and, and I'm going to also just interject here because one of the things that I have to confront in doing this podcast is that there's a lot of discussion now about the word women and childbearing and it's so intertwined there's the gender there's a, the the gender sort of cultural construct issue there's also the physical issue if you physically carry a baby for 9 months i think a lot of people who don't have that capability have absolutely no way of even understanding. I think that that people who have a menstrual cycle at least can can understand that much of not being able to control your body, that your body does this thing and um, that your body is intrinsically involved. Whereas with with men who are fathers, as much as they're involved, their body's not intrinsically involved in in the child rearing so and childbearing. So that's a really interesting distinction to me. So you know, getting to the question of equity, let's talk about what school and work is like for you. And maybe, you know, imagine if you were sitting next to a white man who had everything the same in his life, what would be different for you? <laughs> we don't have to imagine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's, um, I don't know. So my personal experience as a woman who is visibly not white. <laughs> um, I have like seen very clear instances where white men or just men in general have been offered more money for like doing the same thing or um, people will make assumptions that like somebody else who has the same level of experience, the same level of knowledge as me, like people will go to them first and like just assume that I don't know what I'm talking about whereas like that of course like that man like we, we he of course will know <laughs> you know the answer to my question <laughs> and it's it's even it happens in people I don't think it's an intentional um an intentional like slight against people all the time I think it's um uh, an unconscious bias thing <laughs> um where even if people think that you know I'm I'm very progressive. I believe that women should have equal rights. I believe, or like everybody should have equal rights. I believe that um, everybody should be able to pursue science as a career. I think sometimes if we don't confront our own unconscious biases and are not aware of them, um, we can let them uh, interfere with our, um, with, with the way that we would like to, like to see the world, if that makes sense. Like, <laughs> Welcome back to The Babelry. This is your host, Suki Wessling. I am speaking with three women scientists, Nasreen Bruman-Hoshbach, 
Shanna Howard, and Sarah Claus, who study and work at the University of California at Santa Cruz. We've been discussing what it's like to be a woman scientist now. Although the days of outright hostility are mostly past, women scientists face implicit biases that remain unquestioned. In this next segment, we discuss what happens in the classroom, the lab, and in funding that makes women's jobs harder, along with having to be leaders in the effort to combat bias. People kind of will often just because and like assume that you're not the expert on something or assume that you're not the first person to go to. Um, and I also wanted to bring up like me and Nazarene are in, oh, and Sarah too, we're all part of this women in science and engineering group, right? And so this group is intended to promote equity and promote women in STEM. And if you look at the composition of WISE, um, it's like almost all women. And so, you know, the kind of effort and, you know, time and energy and mental energy spent on like promoting equity, like falls to the people that are, you know, suffering from inequities, right? So women and people of color are often kind of the ones who are expected to be part of these diversity, equity, inclusion groups. And then on top of all of their research and normal work, they're expected to do all of this extra labor to, you know, help, help people. And then, you know, the, the white men of the world aren't the ones that are asked to be on those committees and put in the effort. And obviously I think, of course we need women and people of color and historically excluded people because their lived experience is what we're trying to help, you know, so their perspective is obviously important, but I think that you know, to have everybody participating in that labor of like making science more equitable is really important, but that often falls to the, you know, people who, who suffer from it. And Sarah, you mentioned that, um, that you are on the, the beginnings of feeling that you're, you're going to be spending more time on this. Can you explain why someone in your position feels the need to um, to get involved in, in equity fights, not just for yourself, but for others? A couple situations. We went to a, I went to the town hall um, just, I don't know the date, but it was uh, Paul Koch, you know, town hall, Science Hill. And I asked a question. Uh, well, he was one of the major points that he was making is that we are going to be working on equity and our undergraduates. <laughs> and so I called him out on that in a in a um, chat, which I'm, I'm pretty um, bold in those uh, Zoom meetings, <laughs> you know, and so I called him out and I just wrote. So what exactly are you doing to promote equity and, uh, you know, inclusivity and diversity on this campus? And it sent me um, down a very long rabbit hole. <laughs> and he got me in contact with, um, I think she was the vice chancellor dean, dean of DEI here on Science Hill. And that woman and I worked feverishly for months to get a certain situation taken care of. That was basically an inclusivity issue there was some bullying going on and it ended up with a graduate student who was severely bullied in my opinion. And so I had to report it as a mandated reporter. And at the end of that, um, I ended up having heart palpitations and was brought to the ER. <laughs> so we are a zero patch for two weeks. It was really stressful. I didn't feel safe here. I was working 11 hour days over the summer 
And I ended up having, you know, I, and I, and, you know, it sounds um, kind of unreasonable, but I was wearing a whistle around my neck for a while because I was scared I was going to run into this person. And UC Santa Cruz didn't have a bullying policy for their faculty yet. It's being voted on this month. Part of my letter to the dean was um, addressing the lack of change. I'm a I'm a an alumni here. I graduated in '91, and I come back to a situation that I don't see resolved. I, I don't, I, I didn't have a single female professor when I was here. Um, now you do have female professors, I hear. <laughs> I don't think there are very many of color and RTAs, which I've suggested be more representative of our student body. I got a fair amount of pushback. And I feel like I now have a reputation of being the staff person in the biology teaching lab that's like causing all sorts of problems, you know? So that's what got me started, actually, was mm -hmm. that situation. And then in my email to the dean, I said, I have two big things I'm going to be working on right now. Inclusivity, diversity, well, three, I'm working on DEI. So diversity, inclusivity, and my equity and our equity. We are having people leaving this lab because they cannot afford to stay here. And we do, I, I don't know, Shannon has TA'd a lot in the classes and worked, we've worked together a lot and she knows what we do. We're like, we produce all the reagents, set everything up, do all the logistics. It's very undergraduate focused. I literally clean my own classrooms. I sweep, vacuum, and mop my own classrooms because I want our students to have a respectful place to work and get their education. So I haven't really had time to work on my equity issue. You said that you didn't feel safe and were wearing a whistle. And do you think that you would have felt that way if you were male and having an altercation in the in your at workplace with someone, you know, a, a verbal, something verbal, would you have felt physically threatened? Well, I'm a small woman too. Um, and I'm also a survivor. So I think those things play a part in it. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm a very proud survivor. <laughs> um, I have two boys that tower over me. Um, do I think that they are ever unsafe? Yes, I, I worry about them too. I don't. I don't know that in this day and age that being a woman or being a man makes a white male even makes you safe. Um, mm -hmm. But do you think? I mean, I'm I'm talking more about the perception. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yes. And I think I think I have age discrimination to boot. You know, mm -hmm. I'm 56 you know, what's this old lady doing telling me what to do? She doesn't have a degree. Well, for the record, <laughs> you don't look old to me, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's something else that, you know, comes up with women. I was thinking, um, I, I just recently read a piece about, um, about hair, women and hair. And I've been mm -hmm. thinking about the fact that men very seldom, and in, except in certain professions, maybe politicians, men might be more likely to dye their hair. But women, American women, overwhelmingly working American women do dye their hair. And probably dress up a whole lot more too. <laughs> Spend a lot more money on their hair, a lot more time on their hair and clothes. 
Yeah. Yeah. My, my great grandma on my mom's side, she dyed her hair until, you know, she was 94 years old. She would not be seen with any gray hair whatsoever. And even my grandma recently just started, you know, fully going gray. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge thing. And when you're expected to spend all this extra money, because if you don't, then people will be, you know, discriminating against you or whatever it may be, you know, there's all this pressure. And so that's less money and time that you have to do other things. There's this pressure on women to behave certain ways. Um, And so I wanted to ask you two young people, um, because I know that just my my very unscientific look around at young women says to me that a lot of young female scientists are not worrying so much about clothes and hair and and makeup, which I love. Um, (laughs) But do you feel that there is pressure to look a certain way? Or do you think that that's gotten better? I personally do still feel like there is pressure to keep yourself looking um, like put together, (laughs) you know, have your your makeup done, your hair done, uh, wearing nice clothes. Um, I think it is becoming maybe more acceptable for, for people, or maybe people just feel like they care less about what other people think, which I really admire that. Um, (laughs) Um, But just, you know, anecdotally, I have uh, a friend who, you know, women will wear leggings around. I often wear leggings to work, but her male boss basically said to her something like, Oh, you're not going to wear leggings to work. Are you like, you're better (gasps) than that. (laughs) So um, yeah. So it's definitely better, I feel like, than, you know, 50 years ago, but there's still a lot more policing on what women are wearing mm-hmm. and and that kind of thing. So, you know, I don't feel a huge pressure to look super formal, but I also do, you know, take care when I'm getting ready. You know, I want to look nice and I, you know, put my makeup on and all that stuff. So less pressure, but it's still there for sure. Also, my... my... 15 years of um, teaching because I'm small and K through 12, I put a lot of effort into looking different than the kids, you know, so always never wore jeans to work. Absolutely not. (laughs) You know, maybe Friday, a colored pair of jeans. Um, But that, so I kind of come from that a little bit. And I, and I understand that in teaching in general, I believe that that is still happening. You know, professors were, and people will wear button down instead of a t-shirt on a teaching day, um, both men and women. I don't, I don't even know if I'm respected more or less how I dress when I'm here. <laughs> yeah. To follow up on that, like, I, I completely agree. Like the feeling like you should uh, look different from the people that you're teaching and, and trying to make yourself look more put together for that purpose. Um, completely agree. I, um, I also am very short and small and um, I look very young. I look a lot younger than I am. I was once uh, when I was in my uh, mid 20s, accidentally um, mistaken for a middle schooler by the middle school teacher uh, when I was on the train she was trying to hurt her class off of the train and she was ushering me to get off and I was like no I'm not in your class um, so I'm circling back to that question of if you were had a white male sitting next to you with the same credentials. And I, I'm not sure we heard from uh, Shanna and Nasreen about that so much about the, the sense, I mean, you're both students, so, but you have research opportunities, you have 
classroom situations. Have you experienced, do you feel like there's a sense that, that women have that they're not being treated the same? I think in a lot of instances, yes. I don't think it's it's necessarily all the time in every class and every situation. Um, but I do think that there are certain people who make it, um, who create an environment that can make us feel uncomfortable. Also, if there are any like people listening who sit with like a man spreading um, <laughs> like <laughs> position, like please understand that man spreading is a real problem and it is a lot more. It makes it makes the environment around you uh, much less wel- welcoming <laughs> for other people. So please don't do it. <laughs> so so physically, you feel that sometimes physically you are you're not comfortable. Yeah, you're, like you're not allowed to take up as much space. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that it depends on the situation that you're in. So there are, you know, if, if you're in a class where the professor is like, you know, old white dude who's very traditional and very like, oh, the good old days where, like we, you know, we we used to do everything, I don't know, like more like only men could be scientists. And so like, you know, like, I, I think that when there are situations where like people create the environment of their class to be more like hostile to women, I guess, or hostile to people who like not just women, of course, like it's um, anybody who doesn't fit their idea of what a scientist should be. Right. So that could be non-binary people. It could be trans people, um, cis women, people of color. Um, if you don't fit into their box of what they think a good scientist should be, they might treat you differently. And then it encourages other students who do fit that box to treat you differently as well. Um, and it that is one of the the reasons why retention is such an issue in the sciences as well, because when you are in an environment where you do not feel like you're welcome, where you don't feel like you um, are accepted for who you are or respected, you're not going to want to stick around. I mean, if you <laughs> if you have to just fight to just stay in place to be able to like stick to what it is you're doing that everyone else around you is just like, like that's their baseline that they're able to just, <laughs> you know, not, not have to work to, to stay in that, in that area. Like it's, it's not sustainable. And that was great. Naz. But yeah, I'll just add on to, I think like a big part of it, you know, when you're somebody who's in a situation, whether you're a woman, right. Or somebody who's transgender or yeah, someone who doesn't fit into that box. And regardless of whether or not, you know, your professor or your PI or whomever is like actively discriminating against you. There's always this kind of hyper awareness of like, did they make that comment because of what I'm wearing? Or did they give me a bad grade because, you know, I wrote this paper in a way that like resonates with me, but isn't like, you know, the way that someone who's in STEM would like normally quote unquote, write a paper or so on and so forth. Like, if you're even just not sure about that, and you're kind of fixating on these things and like, experiencing stereotype threat where, you know, or there's all this research that shows there's like all of these kind of barriers that Naz was mentioning. It just makes it a lot harder whether or not someone makes, you know, an overt comment to you that's racist or sexist or whatever it is. Like you, you're always kind of thinking about that and it's in the back of your mind all the time. So I I'd like to add to that. I, um, 
part of that email that I sent to our Dean, um, who I hear is a very wonderful guy, actually. I mean, um, but um, I was saying that mandatory classes on discrimination and sexual discrimination, these sorts of things were very helpful. And he was saying, oh, I think they, there's a lot of pushback. You know, I, I don't like that. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I, I think that the people who actually benefit from them are the people who are being discriminated against and the people who are observing discrimination. And it gives you an idea. What is discrimination? I'm personally, microaggression is like, I don't know who wrote that um, basis because it's full on aggression as far as I'm concerned. I, my point was all these mandatory trainings benefit the um, people who it's happening to and the perpetrators probably don't enjoy it. It's interesting. I was just reading, um, there's new research that says that mandatory trainings don't seem to make a difference to the perpetrators, but your point is that they are empowering to the people to who might be discriminated against to be able to identify it. And because a lot of times that's something that, that I think is really important to keep in mind is that a lot of times people don't stop something because they don't know whether it's just the way it is. You know, they don't know whether the, you know, that professor treats other people the way they treat them or whether it's, you know, both of you mentioned not really knowing whether, you know, some comment or something is because of how you're dressed or, you know, your physical presence or anything like that. Welcome back to The Babelry. This is your host, Suki Wessling. I am speaking with three women scientists, Nazreen Rumang-Hoshbach, Shanna Howard, and Sarah Claus, who study and work at the University of California at Santa Cruz. We've been discussing what it's like to be a woman scientist now, and in this segment, we move to the question of how to be more inclusive and to offer more opportunities. We discuss how attracting more non-traditional scientists will improve the quality of scientific research in ways we can't even predict. I, I wanted to move to the idea of why diversity of gender and other diversity is particularly important in scientific inquiry. There's plenty of stories in, in the past of, of science where gender assumptions or bias actually played a role in gathering poor quality data or misinterpreting data. And so can you speak a little bit about the science you do and how, you th how important you think it is for women to be involved and why? Um, I mean, I can speak to ancient DNA studies, I think um, it's very important to have, and I think this also goes for really any field, but I think it's important to have a diversity of people and a diversity of opinions um, and perspectives when it comes to um, designing research, interpreting data, because if you are only looking at data from your own perspective, you might be missing like a whole, uh, the, the entire story, essentially. In ancient DNA, we've recently, well, not recently, but like 
recently it's become more of a widespread conversation, which I'm very happy about. There's there's this issue where a lot of the researchers are only coming from like a very specific background, right? Like they're a lot of them are European of like ancestry um, and then men (laughs) and coming from from like a very a very narrow mindset about how we treat the dead and um, like what what sort of perspectives of like life after death and, and things like that. And so when these people are going and researching uh, like, you know, taking taking samples of skeletons of people's ancestors and destroying them and coming up with these stories about these other people's ancestors without talking <laughs> to the descendants and getting their perspectives and, and including them in the research. Um, you're not you're not going to have the right story, <laughs> you know, like you're not you're not going to actually know um, what's going on. So if you're, if you're excluding large portions of, um, of our population, large, like groups of people, uh, going to completely miss, um, something you would have otherwise seen. And I would add what you can bring to the study, like what they can learn. I find that in a, the, the more diverse the classroom, the more diverse the teaching environment, the more opportunities there are to spark an interest or, or an idea or something like that. Many scientific fields will kind of get stuck in a certain way of thinking or a certain way of doing research or approaching a problem or even, you know, identifying what problems they think are important. And so to have people from diverse backgrounds who have a different of the world or a different personal understanding of, you know, whatever the topic may be, you know, that just gives you so much more ability to like ask important questions that are actually going to help people and then interpret your data in such a way that, you know, you're getting the full story. So yeah, literally can't overstate how important it is to just have a really diverse, you know, group of people working in science in every field, you know, regardless of what it is. So um, you know, and we're we're slowly, slowly kind of creeping toward that. But obviously, there's so many, there are so many other barriers that prevent people from ever getting to the point where they're involved in research at that level um, that we're, you know, still fighting against. I remember when I mean, I was an adult when I re- first read about this, and 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 there was a study that said women have heart attacks less often than men, but they're dying of them much more because they'll go in and the doctor will say, oh, that's just indigestion and send them away. And so, so that until you have women asking these questions or people with different cultural assumptions, not, you know, people with different cultures, not making the same assumptions, you are going to miss, as you said, a large part of the picture. Right. Yeah. I think it was just big news recently, you know, a black medical student basically created kind of a textbook that had pictures of, you know, skin diseases or whatever, and how they appeared on black people's skin, which obviously is, um, you know, often different than how it's going to appear on a white person's skin, or maybe it's more apparent or whatever. 
And so like, this is a person who, you know, as a black student, they're like, this is a real huge area where if I'm seeing a black patient, like I literally have no reference material for what, you know, whatever disease is going to look like. So yeah, just another example of like so many different things where having someone's perspective and someone saying like, actually, this is important. And actually, you know, studying women's health, you know, in the context of women is, you know, important. And I would chime in my experience in the ER. Um, I had a female uh, Asian doctor and I was very happy (laughs) because she really, she really identified some things that I needed to pay attention to. And, And I, and I felt really listened to. Like the idea of hysteria has also been with our um, society for a very, very long time Um, (laughs) where women are just not believed when we say we're in pain. Um, And like, so my own personal experience, um, I have endometriosis, which I was very recently diagnosed with. I have been having symptoms of endometriosis since I was 11 years old and I wasn't diagnosed until I was 29. So <laughs> that's a very, very long time that I was going to doctors and saying, you know, I'm having these problems. I, I'm in a lot of pain. I, you know, telling them all of my symptoms and them saying, well, there's nothing wrong with you. It's all in your head. Um, you know, people will, a lot of doctors, even like, honestly, uh, a lot of doctors who are women, it comes down to it. They are taught within a framework mm-hmm um of how things are and they so like without knowing that they're being misogynistic and and um dismissing uh women's pain like they will also do that <laughs> um and so it's it's up to everybody i think to um to be aware of um you know your own biases that you have and kind of take people seriously when they say that they are in pain if you were to go about what you do starting today when you walk out the door and everything about gender had fallen away, what more would women be adding to what's happening in the world? And I want to start with you, Sarah, because one of the things that you talked about was how much time and energy and the fact that doing this actually made you physically ill that going through that, that situation, you lost time, you lost productivity, um, because of this situation. What do you feel would be the effect on your fields to have women not go through those things? Well, I think, first of all, I think we're all put in this position of having to be super women. You know, we just, we have to be awesome (laughs) at everything. And, um, it would be great to, to just do what I want to do and lighten up some of my brain space to be creative. You know, I think about my two boys who are white, you know, um, and my husband is white. And I think, you know, some people similar, and it's a weird, comp- you know, comparison, but some people wonder about climate change and it's so overwhelming. All these things are so overwhelming. But if we share this burden, if we all take it on as something that we can all do something positive for and give up some of that control, it isn't so burdensome on that one person or that one group of people. 
for me, I guess specifically to that answer would be, it would give me more time to do the things like my equity. (laughs) (laughs) I would have had a raise by now, you know? (laughs) Personally, I'm, I'm lucky in that I don't experience too much, you know, overt kind of misogyny or, you know, discrimination, you know, as a able-bodied white woman, white woman, I'm, I'm a woman, but in many other ways, I'm very privileged, but I still feel like just in terms of the mental load and like suffering from imposter syndrome and wondering, you know, if I'm doing well enough or, you know, even just the time that I spend getting ready in the morning or, you know, the, the time I spend on my emails, making sure they sound friendly enough, you know, like all of this stuff, all these tiny little things that you are kind of always just aware of in the back of your mind, um, you know, it would be less, like Sarah said, mentally burdensome to free up some of that energy for being creative or, you know, getting more of my work done in a day, you know, any of this stuff. So it would be nice. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Shanna put it perfectly. (laughs) I really think um, the mental load of um, like, you know, writing friendly emails and um, constantly questioning whether or not you belong here. Um, Imposter syndrome is real. (laughs) um, It's difficult to get through the day sometimes when you're just questioning whether or not you are smart enough, if you are, you know, good enough, if you're talented enough to be in the position that you fought so hard to get into in the first place. Yeah. My friends and I used to always joke like, you know, what I wouldn't give to be a mediocre white man, <laughs> like <laughs> your life. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure lots of um, white men have very difficult lives as well, but there's a lot of privilege in there that not, not everybody gets to experience. Yeah, that's for sure. And and it's, you know, it's worth always mentioning that of course, every person has their own challenges. And as a teacher, that's something I, I like to remind my students. Every person you meet has their own challenges. And if you focus too much on thinking about, you know, their privileges, you don't focus on your challenges and doing the best you can do. So, um, but, but that, you know, you both mentioned, you all mentioned things that are pretty unique to women. There are very few men out there who would think even probably be surprised to hear that you sit and look at an email and you, you know, we go through this process, we, we write it and then you stop yourself before you hit send. And you're like, Oh, is that, I'm going to soften that verb. I'm going to turn that into a question. Right. Yeah. And then after you send it, you panic, read it again. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you edit it in your mind and you, yes. So I, I would like to end on a positive note, a little bit of we've come a long way, baby. Two of you might be too young to remember that. <laughs> um, the An ad campaign, mm-hmm. uh, by the way. Uh, so talk about something that you are particularly proud of, something about your own achievements or perhaps the way that things have changed or are in the process of changing around you. Go ahead and brag. I just want to say I'm really proud of the work that we are doing um, at UCSC Women in Science and Engineering. Um, I think we've really, we've created so many programs the last couple of years even, um, I think really are making a difference. Um, Both um, undergraduates at UCSC um, and 
like students in our communities um, who are in elementary school, middle school, high school. Um, I've interacted with so many students um, in the past year um, at public schools in our area who remind me why it is that I got into science in the first place of like, you know, it reminds me that we're, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Like having the community of women, mostly women in, in wise who, you know, are all like really badass scientists and also just like really amazing, amazing people. Um, and yeah, I mean, we do one program called science impacting society or SIS, and it's basically, you know, we bring middle school students, mostly girls to campus and give them lab tours and, um, you know, do hands-on science activities with them. And it's like, you know, of everything that I've done as a graduate student in at UCSC, you know, doing these events with the students and like really getting them excited about science and exposing them to, you know, amazing female researchers has been just really, really awesome. It's been the best part of grad school by far. You know, teaching and teaching and, and the love of science is something that I'm really proud of. I, like I said at the beginning, I, I knew I wanted to be a, I, I declared my major at five and it, and it was not a joke. I really did. I used to tell my students that I said, I know I love this and this is what I'm going to do. I don't know how well I'm going to do it or if I can do it, but I'm going to try. <laughs> and one of our boys is he learned, um, he learned how to read out of the North American Audubon bird book, you know, like he's an incredible birder. Um, he's the anthropologist. And another one is just like our pet whisperer at home. And um, I think teaching people about science and creating a very inclusive environment to do that as a teacher I put a lot of energy into that there was a dot there was a child who was bullied and I declared there will be no you know none of that here in this classroom you're working together in a group <laughs> and the parents came up and thanked me for it um, there was another person who came after her third year and told me her name was being changed from I'm just gonna say, Allison to Alan, you know, and I said, I'm You are so brave doing this and I'm going to try my best. She was tanking as a third grader and as a fourth grader, all, you know, absolutely incredible grades. And I just, I just being able to provide an atmosphere or an environment for teaching science that includes everybody is I'm really proud of that. I'm very proud of that. And I do unfortunately have the imposter syndrome also, but, um, at 56, but you know, I don't know what to say about that. I, that's gotta be broken. I think having positive role models who look like you, um, and how, you know, share similar identities with you in the same field that you are interested in is really helpful. If you don't see yourself represented in doing the work that you want to do, it makes you feel like maybe I'm not, like maybe I, this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not allowed to be here. Having more of us <laughs> speak up and uh, be visible in our positions, I think is really important. Bringing our perspective, our, our woman's perspective is for me very powerful. 
it really helped me um, in the summer, you know, the inclusivity problem I was dealing with. My mama bear came out big time <laughs> and she wasn't my child, but she was somebody's child. And I, that, I, I think it's really important to still love, you know, whoever you identify with, you know, like in yourself. I mean, this is, and, and I really do believe that um, different, different ethnicity than me, different first language didn't matter we were women. I'm a mom. I'm going to fight for you. I just want to say, I think that not everyone is aware of how, um, how bad (laughs) the situation really is in the sciences, um, in terms of representation of women, um, statistics that I have seen from recent reports are anywhere from 25 to 30% of scientists are women which is ridiculous because we make up about 50% of the population. Um, and it's even worse in certain fields. So like computer sciences, it's super low representation. It's worse um, for women of color um, in terms of um, representation, in terms of retention, um, like whether or not somebody can, you know, even if they declare their major as an undergraduate, do they finish that degree um, in terms of pay disparity? We've made some really some really great moves in the last few decades, but we still have a long way to go. So the fight's not over. <laughs> I'd like to thank Nasreen, Shanna, and Sarah for speaking so honestly and openly about their experiences as women scientists. Visit babblery.com for links and information mentioned in this podcast. The Babelry is produced with support from KSQD in Santa Cruz, California.